Houston wrote an article, described the, the phenom in rookie baseball. He was training at Mets camp in St. Petersburg, Florida. His name was Sid Finch. You guys remember Sid Finch? You don't? I, I remember. You remember him, Darren? I, I remember him. Uh, reportedly, he could throw the baseball 168 miles an hour. That's pretty fast because uh, the highest speed at that time for a professional baseball player was 103. And uh, he never played baseball before. He had a strange upbringing. He was of English. He was raised in an English orphanage, adopted by an archaeologist who was killed in an airplane crash in a mountain in Nepal. And um, Finch then attended Harvard. But then, maybe because of his dad's crash, he went to Tibet to try to find himself in some regards, found the teachings of his great poet, St. Lama Milarasapa, and he mastered Siddhi, which was the yogic master of, of mind over body and mind-body, kind of synthesizing these things together. And, and through this mind-body mastery, Finch had learned the art of the pitch. And he showed up at the Mets camp in Florida and impressed the manager so much so that he invited him to training camp. And so he was in training camp. But he was pretty weird because he really had never played baseball before. The catcher described him as a pretzel gone loony, is what the um, catcher described him as. And uh, when pitching, so he frequently wore a hiking boot on his right foot and his left foot was uh, bare. Kids have got even a picture there of him pitching, Sid Finch. And, uh, uh, you know, his speed and power were so great, 168 miles an hour, and his accuracy was so good that the catcher would be there and just go, and it kind of knock him back oftentimes. One of the players said it's not humanly possible to hit the, the pitches thrown by Sid Finch. And, and as of this time, in uh, April 1st, 19, uh, was it 95, 1985, um, Mr. Finch, Sid Finch hadn't decided whether to really commit himself to a career baseball player or to pursue a career as a French horn player. So just kind of an esoteric kind of guy. And he told the Mets management on April 1st he'd let him know. Well, in response to the article, Sports Illustrated received thousands, 2,000 letters uh, require, in response to the article and became one of the most famous stories ever. And then a week later on April 8th, Finch said he, he would not. Uh, pursue his baseball career because he lost his accuracy with his fastball. He wouldn't pursue a career with the, the Mets. And on April 15th, Sports Illustrated that the story was a hoax. April Fool's joke is what it was. So I thought that was appropriate to tell you this April Fool's joke. That, how many of I, I hook, line, and sinkered you? Nobody. No, I didn't get any of you. So I got one right there. And okay, maybe I maybe I got you. That's good because you think I speak the truth all the time. That's uh, that's good. This is April first, and I, I tell you that because I have an incredible story to tell you today. I have a story to tell you today of a man who fed five thousand people with a, a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And I have a story to tell you today of a man who walked on water without sinking. Now, many people today think that that is an April Fool's joke, just like the story of Sid Finch, but such is not the case. It is true. It is a reality. It really happened. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. 
Um, you guys can just leave that there. I had it all set, so don't, don't, don't do anything. So They're ruining my illustration, these guys up front here, trying to be helpful, but they're not, all right? Just helping you. All right. Mark chapter 6, our text begins in verse 33. So last week we were in uh, chapter 6, 1 through 32, as so we looked at the trials of ministry today. Uh, we look at the compassion and care of Jesus. So in this text, we're going to see the power of Jesus, like unleashed, like, like none before. Um, we're going to see, see Him just explode in His power, really, doing things that can't be explained other than the fact that Jesus is God. In fact, that's all of what Mark chapters 1 through 8 are about, is to show who Jesus is, that when Peter gets it right, everything after that comes and explains what Jesus did. Who Jesus is and then what He did. But here we're getting a, a glimpse of who Jesus is. And nowhere does His power shine through like his text, this text today. Now, when Jesus showed His power, by the way, He wasn't an ex- exhibitionist. He wasn't like He's in the circus trying to just show how great He was, doing this strange act to get a lot of people to come and see Him. No, His displays of power were expressions of His heart for people. In fact, we're going to see there's a tie between His compassion and then His care for people. His compassion is a heart that drives Him. His care is the external manifestation of that. He had compassion on the people who were coming to Him and so fed them. He had compassion upon His disciples who were struggling in the sea and in the boat and so He helped them. He had compassion upon those who were sick in need of healing and so He helped them and He healed them. It's my message this morning. Compassion and care. We see the compassion of Jesus leading Him to care for others. My first point is He taught them. Verses 33 and 34. Right there. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. So you've got to catch the context here a little bit. You remember that Jesus said it's a busy day of ministry as is all ministry is. You face the fatigue where you need rest. And they said, Jesus said, get in the boat and let's come away to a secluded place where we might rest a while. Verse 31. And uh, while they were on their way there, the crowd watched them go and they said, Jesus is in the boat. And they start running parallel along the lake and they start continuing to run around. Jesus is in the boat. And they started telling all the other towns and villages where they go, hey, Jesus is there, Jesus is there. And so by the time he got to the other side, there was this big crowd there. It's like, it's like he was going on vacation to find some rest only to find that on the way out the door, bring, the cell phone goes off and you answer the cell phone, there's a problem at work. You say, honey, I've got to deal with this problem at work and you stay at work and you just miss your vacation. That's, that's what was happening here. I know if it was me, I would be irritated at what was taking place, but Jesus, being the God-man, perfect man that He was, was moved with compassion rather than being irritated. And verse 34, we see His compassion coming out. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd interrupting his rest, his rest for his disciples. And here's the key, I think, that governs all of chapter 6. He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. We see why he was compassionate towards them. That word for explains why. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That is, they were directionless. They were lost. They were hopeless. They were helpless. They were without guidance, without nourishment, without protection. Their leaders had failed to guide them, had failed to protect them, and so they were left to grope in the dark. And they were coming to Jesus groping for something. 
That's right then. You see how Jesus dealt with these people to help them. He began to teach them. That's why my point here is He taught them. It was His compassion that moved Jesus to teach them. The solution to to, to sheep without a shepherd is to guide them and is to teach them. It's Now, it's not that these people were without teachers. Oh, they had teachers. They had Pharisees and Sadducees, but they were leading them astray and really they were the fulfillment of Exodus 34 when God pronounced the woe to the shepherds of Israel, more concerned about themselves than about the people. He said, woe, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field that were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountain and every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. And the condemnation then came upon the shepherds of Israel who lacked in their duties. And this is the people who Jesus encountered. A lost flock with no shepherd looking out for them. The rabbis weren't going after them and teaching them and saying, hey, come in, come in. They were just looking for something and they, they were finding Jesus and looking for help in Him. And Jesus saw their trouble, knows their situation, and His compassion was upon them. His inner, his inner drive, his, his inner feelings. I have a sister who's very compassionate. Um, Sonia is her name. And when she sees someone hurting, her just stomachs just start. Her stomach just starts hurting, and, and she just feels this overwhelming compassion for people. And that's what Jesus is feeling here. His, his stomach is hurting. He sees how desperate they are. He knows he needs rest. He knows his disciples need rest, and yet they're around. And he begins to preach. He begins to teach them. Now we don't know what Jesus taught them on this occasion, but we do know how Jesus taught them. He taught them for a long time. We know there's two clues in the text. Verse 34, He began to teach them many things. The only way you can teach many things is to teach for a long period of time. Okay? Unless you talk really, really fast. But you teach many things, but you teach for a long period of time. And another one comes in verse 35, when it was already quite late, His disciples came to Him. In other words, Jesus taught them until it was late. I mean, the, 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 the thrust here is that it is a long time that Jesus was with them. And the only way you can teach that way until it's late is if you teach for a long time. Now, as a preacher, I'm comforted by these words. That they taught many things, Jesus did. But, but you know what? I, I'm more comforted and encouraged probably by the people than I am with Jesus. I mean, of course, Jesus is a great teacher. But the people and the response of how, of how they did. My bet is that they were hanging on every word that Jesus spoke. My guess is that they were hungering for the Word of God. And there's a reason for that. I mean, you don't run halfway across the lake to see somebody there, only to meet up with them, only to kind of say, eh, I'll leave now. I mean, I mean, picture this. It's like going to the NCAA Championship Final Four, which played tomorrow, Kentucky and Kansas. And um, you've paid for the plane tickets, you've paid for the hotel room, you've paid for the tickets, you made the trip, you get there, the final game, tomorrow night, and you're there watching the game, and then it hits halftime, and you go, eh, and you leave. You're not going to do that. You're going to stay till the end, and even if your team loses, you're at least going to watch the champions you know, rejoice, and you're going to console your team, or, or whatever. You're going to stay there until the end, because of your investment. And these guys have walked all the way around the lake, chasing, running after Jesus. They've got an investment in this. Of course they're going to stay longer. And I think that's the attitude of those who were with Jesus that day. They, they, they were longing for Him, groping for Him, and He was teaching them words of life. 
Wisdom was coming off his lips. They're being helped by what they were taught. And they weren't going to go anywhere. It was only going to be because Jesus left before, before they left. And as it so happened, they were, were hungering. As it comes out in this next section here. And so there's this battle between their bellies and their souls. And they preferred their souls over their bellies. Yes, they were hungry and yes, they needed something to eat, but, but this, was, this was the true food, the true spiritual food, which they longed for and they loved and they were being fed by that. And so they went hungry and the application is obvious. Are you hungry for God's Word? Would you have stayed? Have you stayed and listened to Jesus for a long time or would you have left at halftime? Do you long to hear the Bible taught? Do you, do you listen to the Bible being taught on MP3s or CDs? Do you, do you read your Bibles? Do you read books to help you in understanding? Do you, do you enjoy hanging around those who can teach you righteousness and teach you the ways of God? Is your hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or is your hunger and thirst merely for physical food? These people were hungering and thirsting for righteousness they wanted to hear it and they didn't leave, which led to the second problem, which led to the second manifestation of the care and compassion of Jesus, is that He fed them. Look at verse 35. When it was already quite late, His disciples came to Him and said, This place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may get something in the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, that may appear cold-hearted by the disciples. Say, you know what? Send them away. Get them out of here so they can go get something to eat. But actually, it was a very kind thing. They knew that it was late. They knew the sun would soon set. And they knew the crowds had been quite some time without food. I mean, after all, they were running after Jesus. It's not like they had been prepared for, okay, we're going to be here all day listening to Jesus. They didn't know that. They knew, they just said, hey, Jesus is going to be there, and they were there. And, and furthermore, they were in a desolate place. They, they couldn't even buy food there if, if they had the money to buy food. They had to go to the villages and surround because it was in a, a desert place, countryside, where Jesus was teaching with them. But Jesus, being the renegade that he is, right, had another plan. He answered them and said, You give them something to eat. All right, so picture yourself, a large sporting event, right, at the NCAA championship game. Well, maybe not that big, but maybe a small arena, thousands of people anyway. And Jesus turns to you and says, see all these people here? They're hungry. Give them something to eat. A big crowd of people. So picture the Metro Center, right? Packed with people. I'm not sure what it holds. 6,000? 7,000? Pretty close to this crowd. Go give them something to eat. How much does that cost? Give everyone a hot dog and a Coke. <clears throat> For 5,000 people, maybe. Hot dog and Coke at the, at the concession stand there. $15, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not that much. <laughs> a lot of money. So we're talking $20,000, $30,000. And you'd be like, oh, Jesus, it would take 200 days wages to pay. And that's exactly what they said, right? They said, they calculated it out really fast and, and they said, verse 37, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Denarius, a day's wages, 200 days wages. This is nearly a year's worth of income. There's no way the disciples had this sort of money. And there's no way even that the disciples were able to do what Jesus asked them to do. It's interesting. Jesus asked them to do the impossible. 
Just kind of testing them, see how they're going to respond. Now, think about it. Regarding a stadium full of people, believe it or not, you might be able to feed them if you have some kind of gold credit card and kind of just, oh, just charge this credit card. And if the bank allows you to go $35,000 in debt, you, you might be able to give a hot dog and a Coke to everybody in the, in the stand. You might be paying for it for a long time. But you could do it. Now, these disciples, though, not only did they have resources, they didn't have any concession stand nearby. And so they were totally helpless. There's no way they were going to be able to do this. They were off in the wilderness, and yet the compassion of Jesus was for the crowds. They saw the reminder to remain with him and learn from him. And so he pressed on looking for a way to feed them. And so he asked this simple question. He said to them, verse 38, How many loaves, how many loaves do you have? He says, Go look. And so I'm just imagining myself going and, and looking. I'm a disciple and, and looking. And maybe they went back to their boat. John says that they found a, a little child. But I, I found this, this child who came with his playmate because he, he knew what was going on a little bit. So he brought his, his playmate there along. And um, when he came, he said, uh, here, this is what I got. He pulled out five, five loaves. This is pretty close to probably what the loaves would have been like like a, a pita bread kind of thing, maybe some of these, these thicker ones so they could kind of push and open and so you maybe have a sandwich with that. So he had, he had five of these and, and he had um, you know, a couple fish that he, uh, he brought and he said, here, you might, you might have some fish. Um, and so they, they grabbed and so they're, they're coming to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we have um, this is what we got. And and uh, we got 5,000 people. Well, here, here we are, Jesus. This is what we have. And here we see... How much do I got to feed? Could I feed any of you guys? Should I put this out of potluck? Nathan, you ever smelled these things? Give them a smell. Pretty strong, huh? You guys want to have these? Potluck, maybe? Eat the bread, but not the fish, all right? Um, these might be a snack for even 12 disciples. To have this, this might kind of be a snack to tie them over, but certainly not a meal. And so Jesus, Jesus says, okay, guys, let's, let me take over. And Jesus takes over right here at verse 39. He commanded the people to sit down in the groups. The disciples weren't being much help. If that's all they could do, Jesus needed a lot more than that. And... Um, so he said, sit down. And so they sat down, verse 40, in groups of hundreds and fifties. Not sure why they did that. Probably administratively wise, so you can mobilize a group of 50 people and 100 people better than you can 5,000. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up towards heaven, he blessed God maybe, he blessed the food. He prayed and said, God, I thank you for the food that you provide. You are the provider of, of all things. And, and I would pray, God, that you might feed these people. And he took the food and he broke the loaves and he gave it to his disciples. And it says there in verse 41, he kept giving to them, to, to the disciples to set before them. He kept giving it to them. So it's like he just, he just kept coming with more and more and more and more. And they were just they were just abundant. I mean they're coming out more and more and, and whenever they went to Jesus, he just kept giving more and more 
and more. I've thought before about how this miracle happened. I remember seeing a Jesus movie one time where they kind of took that and then they had the, these barrels of stuff and all of a sudden, boom, they kept popping out as they start going. I think, I think rather it's Jesus had them and He was keeping on giving them. He just kind of kept creating. Well, you need some more here. 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 And He just kept going. They're feeding 5,000 people. In fact, you know, it's more than 5,000 because Mark just ta- speaks here about how many there were in verse 44. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. I think that, that designation of men is uh, accurate because Matthew says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, there were 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. In other words, there were women and children beyond the 5,000. So, how many were there? 10,000 maybe? 15,000? 20,000? If whole families came? I don't know. My, my guess would be more like 10,000. Mostly it's the men in that culture are going to go ahead, but maybe some women and some children were dragged along, but some stayed at home, surely. But lots of people. you have any idea how much food that is to feed 10,000 people? or five, we'll, just, we'll just stay at 5,000, so we'll keep conservative here. 5,000 people, how much food that is. I have a friend who runs a catering business, and I remember calling him, asking him about this uh, text one time. And I said, Bob, i got a strange question for you. No, I don't have business for you, but I was, I was thinking about this story. He's a Christian man. And I said, well, I think about this story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in your catering business, if you had 5,000 people to feed, what, what would that mean? I mean, I, I don't know anything about catering. What, what would that mean? And he says, well, you know, it's interesting. We have fed 5,000 people before uh, at uh, the fair when everything is going well and, um, you know, the weather treats for him. He, he says, um, let me tell you what, what, that, what that happened at the county fair. We can serve about 1,000 people an hour. We have three double-tabled lines of which we can get our food. And his, his, his menu is really two things. It's either pork chops or it's chicken. Now, he can serve fish as well, but normally it's pork chops or chicken. You get your pork chops or chicken, you pile it up with your Boston baked beans, you pile it up with your coleslaw, you take a bun of a bread or two, and then you go get your um, lemonade or your iced tea. You guys have eaten there, right? It's pretty good. Yeah. And so... Uh, he says, we've got two double-sided serving lines. He got six lines of people rushing through there with cashiers and all this kind of stuff. He can get a thousand people an hour. It takes about uh, nine people to work the serving lines, about three people per line. But then also you have your cashiers and you have those serving drinks. So Jesus, no mention of drinks, no mention of cashiers. So maybe about nine people can serve a thousand an hour is what he said. And then he tried to figure out, okay, let, let's, let's figure out if it's just fish and it's just bread and it's just 5,000 people. He started calculating out. Well, we need 5,000 fish fillets. That would be one per person. And uh, at six to eight ounces each, that's 2,000 pounds of fish that we need. And uh, he said we'll need 6,000 rolls of bread because he knows that 12 rolls of bread will feed 10 people because some people will take two, right? The big husky folks like me will take two pieces of bread. And the smaller petite ones, like Stephanie, will only take one. All right? So about, about 12, uh, 12 rolls will do that. And to his rolls, he figured about half the size of, of what I've got here on this bread. So even reduce that down. So maybe 250 dozen loaves of bread. That's what he's going to need. That's a lot, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of flour. It's a lot of fish. 
It's no small dinner party. And yet, how did Jesus do this? It just spontaneously came out from Him. Everything that was needed, 2,000 pounds of fish were coming out of Him. I'm not sure how much the bread weighed, but it was a lot. Kind of here, here it is. Think of this picture. Wherever there was a need, Jesus continued to meet that need. You know how Jesus made his fish, don't you? He said, "Fish." And you know how he made his bread, don't you? He said, "Bread." And just started going fish and bread, and started coming out to. To everything. I mean, it shouldn't be such a surprise that he can do that. I mean, after all, he is the the creator of the world. He said, "Let there be light," and there was light. He said, "Let the land come forth with animals," and and so it was. And so he can say, "Give me fish, give me bread, boom," and he can do that, and he can feed the five thousand people. And verse forty-two says that it's not just like each of them just got one; each of them were satisfied. So maybe it was more, maybe everybody had two fish fillets just to fully satisfy themselves. And when I read verse 42, I think about my experience when my wife and I go out to eat at restaurants. Probably your experience too. You order your food, whatever, and it always comes in big. Not every restaurant is that, but restaurants we frequent more often is the big ones. And, and so you, you get, you get more than you can eat. And even I find myself having to stuff it down in order to eat everything. Yvonne normally can't do that, so she brings home some portion of a box. And the waitress comes by and says, um, would you like any dessert? And, and what, what Yvonne and I always do is we look at each other, we smile and giggle and say, no thanks, I'm stuffed. I mean, we just, it's like ritual, it's like what happens every single time. I, I think the times I've had dessert at a restaurant are, are only when it's free, okay? But, but other than that, I just had to cram it down. I'm thinking about, about these people here. These people didn't get dessert. Why didn't they get dessert? I think they were stuffed full. No need for dessert for these people. Because Jesus fully satisfied them. I mean, such is the, the resources of Jesus. He doesn't just meet our needs. He even exceeds our needs and gives us beyond what we need. And that's clear in verse 43. They picked up 12 baskets full of the broken fish. Now, we don't know what these, what these baskets were or what they looked like. They were small baskets used for eating. And so, my guess is that they were a basket, you know, something like this maybe. Maybe some were bigger, some were smaller. Um, but they, they picked up all the scrap pieces. And you can see I can fit this in here. And they were probably heaping over, flowing. And there were 12 of these. One for each disciple. And I think that that really is, is the point of things, is that every disciple saw how Jesus had multiplied the loaves. It was right there in front of them as they walked among the 5,000 people as they picked up the scraps. Now, I'm not sure why they, they picked up the fish to, uh, to eat that the next day. I mean, right? Fish and neighbors are the same. You've heard that before, Ben Franklin said. Right? They both taste good, but they stink in three days, is what he said. So, fish, I mean, my mother-in-law likes to put salmon to eat the next day. And I'm like, oh, she eats it down. I'm not sure why you want to keep the fish. Maybe it's to throw it in the junkyard so it's not to collect animals or something. I'm not sure. But they collected 12 baskets full, and they all got to see the mighty works of God, how He provided for them. And the application here for us is really obvious, natural. Do you see the power of Jesus? 
Do you see the compassion of Jesus which stirs that power? Can you say with Paul, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus? If He can feed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves, you think He can meet your needs? In fact, He didn't need anything. He didn't need loaves. He didn't need fish at all. Because He spontaneously generated and created this right there. He didn't need any of this. He could have fed us with nothing. Why He went through the exercise of giving five loaves and two fish, I'm not exactly sure. But let me just say, why do you doubt that Jesus can't do this in your life today? Cause some things to take place. When you have a need, they had a, a legitimate need of hunger. And He felt care and compassion for them. So, why do we doubt that Jesus won't be willing to supply all of our needs either? He is both willing and able to supply all of our needs. Well, we're going to take these and, and put them away lest they stink the auditorium up. Sure, you can, you can pack those away. And uh, I dare some of you may young boys maybe to try some of the fish. You might have to cook it. I'm not even sure. It's smoked and it... Does it stink, guys? <laughs> it was in my office last night for like three minutes and I smelled it like the rest of the evening. It was terrible. Anyway, we see the compassion of Jesus teaching them, feeding them, and now helping them. What I put in my notes? He helped them. And I think it's all driven by the compassion and the care of Jesus. Here it is, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side to Bethsaida while He Himself was sending the crowd away. And after bidding them farewell, He left for the mountain to pray. Now, I'm, I'm not sure why Jesus did this. Uh, um, perhaps Jesus didn't want a repeat of what happened before. We said, okay guys, thanks crowd, we'll see you, get in the boat and then drive away and then only have them to run around the shore so they never get the rest. So maybe he figured, hey, let's get these disciples in the boat, let's get them out. They're attracted to me, but maybe they'll lose sight of him way out, a couple miles out into the lake and maybe they'll come after me. They, he sent them to Bethsaida, which they're probably up in the northern region of Galilee someplace, maybe Capernaum is where they were. And Bethsaida is just kind of right around the northern shore, just past the, the Jordan River. It flows from Mount Hermon. So just, he's not saying go clear across the lake. Probably just a few miles, a couple miles just right up there to Bethsaida. Uh, maybe he sent them away so they get the rest, but maybe Jesus himself even realized that I need to spend time with my Heavenly Father. Don't underestimate the need that Jesus had to pray to his Father. And thereby, He is the example for our walk of our life as well. Anyway, Jesus was on the mountain praying. His disciples were in the boat rowing. And we pick up the story here in verse 47. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Okay, that's several miles out. And He was alone on the land. On a mountain kind of up a ridge so you could maybe see the, 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 the Sea of Galilee. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about... The fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Okay, Jesus had compassion for his disciples. He saw them struggling and so he went to go get them. It seems that every time the disciples and Jesus separate from themselves, the disciples always flounder in their faith. 
Um, like for instance, we already saw that when Jesus was asleep in the boat. They weren't maybe separate physically, but they were separate. Jesus was sleeping in dreamland and they were, uh, they were on the boat and their faith didn't do so well. Do you not care for us or we're going to perish? And Jesus rebuked the winds and rebuked them for the, having a little faith. We're going to see in chapter 9 when Jesus is up on the mountain of the Mount of Transfiguration and His disciples are down here and they're trying to cast out this demon from this boy who keeps throwing himself in the fire and, and they can't do it. And Jesus came down and they came rushing and said, your disciples tried but they couldn't. And they said, how, how can this one come out? Jesus lamented and said, oh, faithless generation, you need to know this kind comes out only by prayer. Only by praying and believing does that come out. Whenever Jesus apart from the disciples, they begin to have their battles with unbelief. They do. They doubt. Even Jesus telling them, hey, we're going to Jerusalem to die. I'm, I'm going to die. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up. And then they start thinking about who's the greatest. They, they start um, thinking about their own self. They, they rebuke Jesus. say, hey, that's a bad plan. They don't believe. These disciples do. And we'll, we'll pick that up a little bit more. Just the whole battle with unbelief is a theme through Mark for sure. Well, Jesus helped them and notice how carefully He helped them. He didn't come right away. He delayed. If you track time, verse 47 has us in the evening when He dismisses everybody. Probably enough light to get home before it gets dark. And here we are in verse uh, 47, the sun setting, maybe it's 6 o'clock, something like that. The next time reference comes in verse 48 is the fourth watch of the night. The four watches of the, the Jewish night. First one starts at sundown, probably about 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Second watch goes from 9 o'clock to midnight. Third watch goes from midnight till 3 in the morning. And fourth watch goes from 3 in the morning till 6 in the morning. So we say it is the fourth watch. We don't know the beginning or at the end of the fourth watch. We can just kind of assume it was deep, deep in the morning. 3 a.m. to 6 in the morning, maybe 4 a.m.-ish kind of time. We don't exactly know. And Jesus was on the mountain praying from evening until 4 o'clock. In the, how, how many hours is that, kids? About how many? <laughs> I forgot my calculator at home. How many? Yeah, Gage? Yeah, eight. Eight or nine or ten or something like that. I mean, there's, there's a eight hours. He's there. And so, how long have the disciples been struggling at the oars? We don't know. However, we do know about the Sea of Galilee that during the day when the sun's out, it's pretty pretty placid and still, but when the sun goes down, it gets the desert time. And what happens in the desert or an arid place when the sun goes down? What happens outside? It gets cold, right? And, and what happens when a warm front with a lake meets a cold front of the night? It's turbulence. It starts... And so the, the Sea of Galilee really does that. Calm during the day and every night when it's, when it's uh, colder, it kind of starts waving up a little bit more. Well, this night, maybe there was a, a wind that kicked up on top of that as well. And um, it, was, it was really going... My guess is the disciples, having left towards evening, found easy rowing for the first little bit. They didn't quite get maybe the two or three miles away they were going. Maybe they're mowing at a, a mile an hour or two miles an hour or something like that. But it, start, it starts getting at them and they're close to shore and this uh, storm cart starts coming and they can't get... I'm guessing that they probably struggled, oh, six, seven hours at the oars trying to get there. Um, doesn't take too long to go when they were going. He's just on the north swinging by to Bethsaida. But it's interesting here. They're going to find themselves in when they end up in Gennesaret. 
the Gennesaret's on the eastern, on the western border. And so I think that they were blown off course. And here's Jesus. He saw them and He didn't come right away. It's a little bit like some of the man-to-man group have been uh, watching uh, some videos with John Piper. He's talking about John chapter 11. And uh, he talked about the fact that Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick and that he was dying and he loved Lazarus. Therefore, he stayed for two more days to let him die because he knew he was going to raise him up and it was going to be a great glorious thing. But his love for him didn't come right away. It waited. And that's often how love works. See, the parent who comes at every whimper of the child is not helping the child. Okay? All you're doing is creating codependency upon you. Every time the, the child says something or, or falls down or cries, I mean, if someone's hurt, a child's hurt, you've got to care for them. But if they're just eliciting sympathy, you, you kind of hold your arm. You need to create... Think about what is the goal of parenting? Isn't the goal of parenting to raise children who be independent and responsible? And, the, and the, as, a, as an infant, right, there's not a lot that they can do on their own, but as soon as they start getting more and more abilities, you ought to let them do more and more things on their own. You not come, don't come to their aid every single time, right? Because you want them to go and flourish all by themselves. It's a little bit like my son, SR, right now is working towards getting his driver's license. He needs 50 hours to get his driver's license. How many have SR? In the 30s. I'm guessing 35 is what my guess would have been. And um, you know what? Mom is too terrified to drive with SR at this point, just to let you know. So it's only been Dad at, at this point to get him go. Because Mom... <gasps> oh, you have little faith, Yvonne. I, I don't know. It's like that with a lot of, lot of women. I find that a lot, of, a lot of men can handle, a lot of women just can't. And so I don't know what it speaks about that. But anyway, I'm, I'm out every chance we get. I, I drive with SR. Whenever he remembers his license, he's out. And um, here's the question he's constantly asking me. He comes up to, uh, to a stop sign and, and the traffic's going across and then when he thinks he can go, he, he says, Dad, can I go? Can I go? And then, you know, he kind of goes out. Or if he's in a, um, you know, got a left-hand turn lane and he's kind of sitting there and the traffic zoom, 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 zooming by. Dad, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? Or, or even if there's a red light and, but he's turning right and there's a green arrow. He kind of, Dad, can I go? Can I go? And, and um, he just hasn't totally learned to be comfortable. It's not second nature to him yet. I mean, it will be sometime. But, just not, but he's always asking, can I go? Can I go? Now think about if I said, uh, yep, go now. And every time, what if I said, yep, yep, no, no, yep. What if I answered every time he asked that question? Would that be good? <laughs> no. How's he going to handle it when I'm not there? And so... Do I normally answer your questions? I'm deathly silent. <clears throat> I just pretend I'm reading or something. Huh? What did you say something? I just let him go. Now, you asked me, didn't you ask me this last time we came home on Wednesday night <clears throat> um, about <clears throat> answering those questions or something? Dad, will you tell me? I think we had a conversation like that. Dad, will you tell me? And I said, SR, uh, I think we we're driving in. And he said, are you okay over there? Are you okay? He's like, Dad, will you ever tell me? And <clears throat> I remember my comment was something like, I'll tell you when you can't, okay? <laughs> no, stop! Uh, I'll tell you that, alright? <clears throat> um, but I know that I want to teach SR to be able to drive. <clears throat> I'm, I'm okay here. I want to teach SR to drive independently of me. And so I want to stretch him. I don't want to answer his questions. That's the loving thing to do. And so likewise, when it comes to disciples and when it comes to God, 
What is it that he wants to teach us? Does he want to teach us faith and belief and trust? And so what's, what's a great way to teach faith and belief and trust from God's perspective? Okay, play God, all right? In a, in a non-blasphemous kind of way, okay? You, you have people and they need to learn faith. How do you get people to learn faith? Don't answer, that's right. Let trials come and don't answer. You just be quiet. You just let them strain there at the oar. You just let them go at it. That was the topic of our small group on Friday night. God knows the details of all of our lives. He's got a plan of our life. I mean, Romans 8.28, right? God caused all things to work together for good to those who love God or are called according to His purpose. And so, if you're a believer in Him, if you've been called by His purpose, you know that God's got every detail of your life all planned out. And so, you're facing a trial in life and you're praying and when God is not answering your prayer, what's happening? It's not so much that God isn't answering your prayer. He's saying, that wouldn't be good for your faith. I'm just going to hold back for a little bit. You just keep trusting me. That's what He's saying. But too often, right, people will, will demand, right, perfection and, and they'll get bitter that God isn't answering them, that they're continuing to go through their trial. But God is just building up our faith. And so, you know, rather, rather than getting bitter, rather than getting angry, rather than getting frustrated, God says, no, just wait on me. Just trust me. Just wait and see. Submit your plan to my plan and it will turn out. And just even knowing that there's a purpose behind our unanswered prayers and to know that there's a purpose for God's hand in our life, we ought to submit to what comes our way. Let's not say we don't pray. I mean, certainly we pray, but we we bend to to God because He's orchestrating all the circumstances for our good. Now, the mere fact in verse 48, think about this, that Jesus saw them demonstrates He knew full well what was going on. Think about it. It's It's a windy day. And, and, and even, even when there's a stormy, windy, and it's out, and it's daytime, and the water is kind of splashing up like that, it's hard to see very far on the sea. Right? Or, or maybe it's raining a little bit. When it's raining and you're driving, it's kind of hard to see like that. And these guys, as it says, were in the middle of the sea. They were, in other words, they were far from any, any seashore. So it's not like they were, oh, they're right here close to me. No, it's like they were way out there. I'm guessing several miles away. In fact, even Matthew tells us, that they were many stadia away from the land. Like along with several miles away. And Jesus could see them straining at the oars. If Jesus could see them at the fourth hour of night, He could see them at the third hour of the night. If He could see through several miles of thick wind and deep darkness, He could certainly do that. And so it was at the perfect time Jesus came to them. Alright, let's pick it up again in verse 48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, when he intended to pass by them, I don't think he was going to say, Hey guys, how you doing? Phew, and be gone. I think that maybe he was kind of going to walk around the boat, maybe, if they didn't recognize him, or kind of walk around and get a different angle, but kind of going by them in order to come back, I think was, was the idea. Um, what he did. And then verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that he was a ghost and cried out, probably cried out for fear. Ah! You know, that's understandable. 
I am, if you're out there on the boat straining in the wind, the last thing you're going to expect is a dude walking on the water. I, I'm thinking it's a ghost as well. Alright? I mean, that's the rational thing to, to think that that's, that that's happening. And they all saw him and were terrified. And Jesus then spoke with them and said, probably in a calm voice, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Rather than finding comfort in the presence of the Lord, they were terrified. In fact, even you get here, remember when, when the sea, he calmed the sea before? And um, right, what's worse than having a storm outside your boat? It's having God inside your boat. Right? Remember that? And, and here even, what's worse than battling a storm is to see Jesus walking on the storm and to seeing Him calm the storm. I think it was the mere presence of Jesus even that terrified them. Jesus said, take courage as I, don't be afraid. Yeah, easy to say, very difficult to do in this storm. But you know what? This is exactly what God calls us to do in our trials. The storms that come upon our life, the difficult times that come upon our life, when we are rowing for hours or maybe days or months or years and and straining at the oars and trying and and suffering, Jesus says this, take courage, literally in the Greek, here it is, take courage, I am, and do not be afraid. That's what He said, a go and me. In the Greek, I am. Reference back to Moses, reference back to Yahweh, reference back to all the I am's of John's Gospel. It says, I am. I am God and I am here. Cease striving and know that I am. Psalm 46, verse 10. And so you may be going through some trials in your life with your family or your children or your jobs or your health or your houses or your cars or whatever. Jesus knows about it. He has compassion for you as a child. He cares for you. He has the power to get you out right now. But He might let you strain for a little bit longer. Remember, a friend friend of mine is going through a difficult time in his life. He'd walked with the Lord for many years and so he had a, a right perspective on things that even though the time looked bleak in his life, he kept telling me, you know what, Steve? God's timing is perfect. He's He's... Rarely early. He's never late. He's always right on time. He's rarely early. Sometimes. He's never late. He's always just right on time. Just in time. And such was the case with the disciples. Jesus didn't come early. He didn't come late. He came right on time. And to test them and to help them with faith right on time meant hours of rowing and straining against the wind. And He does the same in our lives. So I just say, trust Him. Trust Him. Well, let's look again at verse 51. Then He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. Again, that who is this who even the wind and the sea obey Him? But we get a a reason why they were astonished. It's very interesting. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now that links us to the story of the 5,000, right? They had not learned about the loaves. But their heart was hardened. They hadn't learned their lesson. Even though each one picked up their basket full of scraps, 
And that's why I made the point. I think every single one of them had physical evidence before their face that Jesus took two fish and five loaves of bread and woo, produced this and produced that for you and that for you and that for you and abundantly created so that everyone was satisfied. Nobody was saying, um, can I have thirds? Can I? You know, if they wanted thirds, they could have thirds. If they wanted fourths, they could have four. Whatever they wanted, they could have had. And they saw it right before their eyes. And yet, they didn't understand. They hadn't gained insight. Jesus was Sid Finch. He was superhuman. It was really true. If he cared for the multitudes, he was able to feed 5,000. And if he could feed the 5,000, certainly he could rescue them from the storm that they faced. But they hadn't learned their lesson. And sadly, we don't learn our lesson sometimes either. As I said before, the unbelief is a theme in Mark. We see them worrying in chapter 8 because they have no bread. I, I love this intercourse. L- look, look here at uh, um, chapter 8, verses 17 to 21. Let's turn over there. Verse 16, they began to discuss they, they didn't have bread. So aware of this. So they're, they're going across the sea. They don't have any bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? I mean, like, is bread a problem for me? They thought that bread was a problem because they, they didn't have any bread. And they said, oh no, we're going to go hungry. <laughs> Golly, Jesus fed 5,000. And that's what he said. He's going back. Do you have a hardened heart? Do you not yet understand? Having eyes you see and having ears you hear. And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves, right? Refresh my memory again. For the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, twelve. Peter, you had one, and James, you had one, and John, you had one, right? And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and uh, you all had one, right? Every single, yeah, okay. What about, and he's going to do this later in chapter 8, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? And there he said, seven. These were a little bit different. I think these were bigger. They only had seven, and he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Listen, the fact that you don't have any bread, zero problem with me. No problema. That's how Adriana says it. No problema. Right? Spanish. No problem when you're with Jesus. But they didn't understand that. But here it is. The feeding of the 5,000 isn't just to understand about feeding the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000, if they would understand it, embrace it, would help them be calm in the storm would help them face a situation with their children, would help them face a situation financially, help them deal with all... If you understand the 5,000, I don't think it's an accident that the 5,000, miracle of the 5,000 is included in every single gospel. It's the only miracle in all five, four of them. And they struggle with unbelief. They just, they just didn't get it. Now, there, there is something here that should be very encouraging for us. First of all, their unbelief should be encouraging to us, Right? The fact that they didn't believe or they're struggling with unbelief is encouraging. Um, but often there's something else here. We, we can think, wow, if only I were there, if only I had my hand on the wicker basket, and if only I could see the overflowing fish and the bread there, then I would believe. No, not really, because the disciples saw it and touched it and, and saw how Jesus, and they didn't believe either because they had hard hearts. And so even as Peter said, Jesus said to Thomas, right, do you believe because you see? 
Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. That's us. We don't see. We don't see Him now, First Peter 1. But yet believe in Him. We love. We don't see Him, but we love Him. That's where we are. Even though we haven't seen. But we can understand that this is no April Fool's joke. This is the reality. And when we embrace the fact that Jesus can feed the 5,000, all of a sudden it gives us great security and comfort in our problems and trials that we face in life. Alright? Well, let's go to my, my last point. It's going to be really quick because there's a lot of, not a lot of unique things here. Jesus showed His compassion and care when He taught them, when He fed them, when He helped them. And here it is, verses 33 to 50, 53 to 56, when He healed them. When they crossed over and came to the land of Gennesaret, right, they had been blown out of the way and they moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, same problem. Immediately the people recognized Him See, if the disciples would have just gotten to the shore, they could have been there and had some rest. But again, no rest for Jesus. And they ran that whole country and began carrying here and there on the pallets those who were sick to the place where they heard that Jesus was. Whenever he entered villages or city or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him they just might touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Here you see not just one event, but lots of events. But here coming to Gennesaret, the people coming out of the boat, lots of people recognizing Him and bringing people. Bringing people on stretchers. You know how, how hard that is? How heavy people can get going on a stretcher? I mean, I, I hold my son up here for worship sometimes. He likes that. He likes me to whisper in his ear the, the words that are coming up because he can't read. And, and he's, a, he's a little tanker now. But I'm holding him and he's just getting heavy and heavy and heavy. Can you imagine carrying someone 10 miles so that they can see Jesus just touch the fringe of his garment to be healed is an evidence of, of faith. And I think that this whole idea about touching the fringe of his cloak probably came from the hemorrhaging woman who touched it and was healed and reputation started getting around. Hey, do you know the power of Jesus? Do you know the power of Jesus? If only you just touch the man, you'll be healed and Jesus, of course, as He went and healed people, gave them a personal touch, was compassionate with them, but as many as touched it were cured. And I just say this by way of application, that Jesus is our healer. And we need to touch Him. Now, we don't touch Him in the way that they touched Him back then. I mean, He's, he's in heaven right now. He's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But there is a way that we can touch Him spiritually. And He is the place where all of our Cures are healed. Right? You guys remember Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Right? Who heals all your diseases. Who forgives all of your sins. Who redeems our life from the pit. Who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. That's the one we need to touch. We need to touch Him who heals us. And a time in which maybe we can get as close to touching Jesus as ever is during the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate now. Um, there is something where Jesus commanded us and told us to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a, as a physical way of, of putting something in our hands and something in our mouths. We are, we are Protestants, so we are not icon worshippers. We don't have statues. We don't have things that we bow down to. We don't kneel. But there's one thing that Jesus even gave us physically to help us touch Him and feel Him and taste Him. Now, of course, we're not Catholics, so we don't believe that it transubstantiates Him. It's not the presence of Jesus there. But it is. There is this mystical 
this mystical union that we can have with Christ as we celebrate the supper. And you remember when Jesus on the night when He betrayed, what did He do? He took the bread and He blessed it and broke it. Very much parallel to exactly what Jesus did here in feeding of the 5,000. Right? Verse 41, He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up towards seven, He blessed the food, broke the loaves, He kept giving to the disciples. That's, that's very similar to what He did in the Last Supper. He took the bread, He blessed it, He broke it and distributed it to everybody. Foreshadowing the death that He would die. And He said, you eat this. He said, my body. And the symbolism there is that we are, we are eating of Him, we are embracing Him, we are trusting Him, we are touching Him. Then we took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's the, it's the blood that's there that, that, is, that is representative of the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to celebrate here this morning. Uh, we've been doing this every Sunday in Lent. And so this is our last Sunday. We won't celebrate next Sunday, which is Easter, because He's not dead. Uh, but He is coming and coming again. But this will be the last Sunday in a row that we've done this. hope it's been a blessing to you to reflect upon the death of Christ. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray.